This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 35. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 35, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. I'm sitting here with my army of three coffee cups. Two of them are empty. One of them is almost empty. Yeah, drinking a lot of coffee. You know, I just love coffee. Anyway, speaking of coffee, I was uh, fortunate to meet up with WCA listener Theo from Berlin, Germany uh, in the last couple days, which was a real treat. I'm looking forward to meeting more of you out there in the world. If you come to the Bay Area or if you um, or if I'm coming to your area, And what's really great is to just sit down, drink coffee with people who genuinely love the show and to listen to their ideas about the show and to get feedback about what's working, what's not working, what they'd love to see or hear rather. Fantastic opportunity. And I, and I really had a good time. So Theo, thank you. I hope your travels around the Bay area are great and, uh, safe travels back to Berlin and, uh, hello to Berlin, our listeners in Berlin. Thank you for, uh, listening. All right. So uh, today's guest is Catherine Veracoli. And you might recognize Catherine's name if you've listened to the Alan Farmello interview, because Catherine and Alan are involved with Pink Noise Mag, their blog. And Catherine is also the owner and manager of 513 Recording in Tempe, Arizona, or Phoenix, Arizona. It's in the, in the Tempe area, the greater Phoenix area, I should say. Catherine has been running 513 for the last nine years, and she's going to talk about her experience with that, building a residential studio and dealing with all kinds of things, all kinds of challenges with regards to building a studio, running a studio in a market that is not exactly, as we always like to point out, you know, are the beacons, at least in the United States, the beacons of recording hubs in the United States, like Nashville, Los Angeles, New York. Those three are kind of, you know, the hallmarks right now of what what is working in the music industry, or at least attempting to work. <laughs> so uh, Catherine's coming up soon, so I look forward to uh, you hearing my interview with her. And want to talk about a couple new uh, changes to the website, which you may have noticed. Maybe you saw my posts, uh, but we have two new sections on the website. I'm actually going to the website right now. Look at that. So we've got a couple changes going on. We've got a, uh, underneath the uh, the header there, we now have the WCA podcast listing. That's the first change. Now, what that is is basically, um, you know, an, the ability to click on one simple link and get a full listing of all the podcasts that we've done. Because I've noticed if you go to the website in the past, you kind of had to wade through a lot to get to earlier podcasts. And I thought that was a little bit challenging. So I've changed that up a bit. So if you go to WCA podcast listing, there will always be a listing of newest to oldest shows and links to the pages for you to check out. So I hope you enjoy that. And then uh, one other addition that is going to expand over time is the WCA recommends section. And of course, that is just a group of uh, products and services and uh, books and things that I have enjoyed or I do enjoy or that I, uh, I find useful in what I'm doing. And I thought I would put links to those things so that you could uh, click on them yourself and see if they work for you. 
some of the books there, Michael Beinhorn's Unlocking Creativity, of course, and Glenn John's Soundman, Jeff Emmerich, here, there, and everywhere, all great books. And uh, there you go. When you click on those and they take you to the Amazon thing, that is, and if you were to buy those books on Amazon, uh, Working Class Audio does get a referral fee for that. So I'm just being upfront about that. I want to make sure you know where there's an opportunity for WCA to get a little bit of money to put back into the costs. Actually, just renewed the the hosting for the last year for the next year, and uh, all this stuff is starting to pile up a little bit of cost. So I want to try to make up for it where I can, and that's one way to do it and still provide um, something that I believe in. There, uh, some of the things on there, the finances, the mint dot com thing. I want to talk about that. That's just something I use, and I was having trouble because I had all these different accounts and you know, some credit cards, some bank accounts, some, you know, car loan, and trying to kind of wrangle all that stuff together and keep track of it all. And, you know, unless you're a super type A personality, which I am not, then this is kind of a good solution for me, because it just puts it all into one area and allows me to monitor what's going on with the accounts. And it's a really good resource for uh, anybody who's looking to, you know, keep track of what's going on. And then, of course, uh, there's an audio software section, which, of course, I have wholeheartedly endorsed the uh, Sonarworks thing, and I provided a link there. Looking to get uh, you guys a more permanent discount there, talking with our friends over there to work that out. And that's it. Those are some uh, new additions. Uh, and something upcoming, I am working on it. A few of you have asked me, where are the T-shirts? What's going on with the shirts? There will be eventually a WCA store link on there. And... On there, we'll we'll start off with some shirts and and possibly some hoodies. I'm a big hoodie fan. I'm not really dragging my feet. I'm actually just doing some research, and I've got some friends who are in the apparel business, and I am consulting with them to make sure that I I provide you with a quality uh, shirt or hoodie, and not some kind of throwaway piece of clothing, but something that is high quality that will last. And just trying to figure out the costs and all of that stuff. So eventually we will have a uh, store there for you to buy some, uh, some working class audio uh, shirts and hoodies. And uh, I've got some other ideas coming up the pipeline that uh, you might enjoy that I'll announce as they become available. But uh, we'll start off with some shirts and, and hoodies uh, eventually here. So I appreciate your patience. That's it. Got a great show here. Let's uh, take a listen to my call with uh, Catherine Veracoli. And uh, you'll be pleased to know that this call took place where uh we did do it over Skype, but Catherine and I each were able to record our each of our sides of the conversation, so the quality is much higher than a typical Skype call, and I hope uh, hope that pleases the ears of those listening. And that's it. All right. Catherine Veracoli from 513 Recording here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. You are the owner of 513 Recording, or is it called 513 Studios? Uh, it's just 513 Recording. It used to be called 513 Analog, but then we had a lot of people who didn't think that we had Pro Tools, which was really funny. So it's funny how much business we ended up sort of losing because of that. So we took the word analog out of the name, and we're just trying to get through that transition. But yeah, just 513 recording. And this is uh, a studio that you've been involved with for about nine years, right? We just hit our nine-year anniversary 
actually this week, which is pretty cool. And you have two other two other studio partners, is that right? I do well, sort of. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a it's a big sort of community run studio, which is super cool. Um, I've got a staff of a bunch of great guys that I love. Um, my house engineer has been with me since the beginning, so nine years. His name is Mike, and he's great. Um, and then we recently just uh, brought on an assistant engineer, Dominic. Super young, great guy, and I tend to work with him uh, most often. I like to collaborate when I when I work on records, so I very rarely like to work by myself. So Dominic and I tend to tend to get in on things together, and it's a lot of fun. This is in a residential neighborhood, and you don't advertise the address on the website for reasons, uh, some of which I'm I'm going to make some assumptions about for for security reasons, and other reasons I would assume are. Uh, Zoning reasons is that is that right? Yeah, um, zoning is is a part of it. I mean, we've got well, we've got two rooms. Uh, the tracking suite is actually built into the house itself, so we don't really have too much of an issue zoning there. And we are we are a business, and we're legit with the city. But we have a mixing suite that we added on. Um, that was an add on. We had to go through the city of Tempe, and it was a big to do. So there's a little bit of zoning involved in that decision, but most of it is security. I live here. Um, all the stuff I love is in this house, my dog, you know, all of that stuff. So it's important that people don't just know where all this gear is sitting, know where all these things are sitting. And it's important for my clients too, because, you know, a lot of people sometimes will want to just pop over during a session if they know what's going on. And, um, if they don't know where it is, then better off. So what do you think would happen if you did advertise? I'm just curious. I'm not sure. I, I don't, I think it's more of just, we haven't since we've been in business and we haven't had any issues, you know, we haven't had break-ins, which is great. We haven't had security problems. Um, considering nine years in a residential neighborhood right next to a giant college, literally we're pretty much almost on the campus of Arizona state university. Um, so with those things being said, it's just the way we've always done it and we've been, we've had great luck with it. So it's kind of like, you know, it's not broken, don't fix it sort of thing. Um, so I'm not sure what would happen. I mean, I don't think it would be a big to do. It's just, I guess it's peace of mind for me. Are you the only one that lives there? Uh, no, I live here. I live here with my girlfriend, Jess. Um, she's been here for seven years. She's great. Cause she doesn't mind, um, drums at 2am, which is a rarity. So yeah, but you know, it's funny. I, I, I live here full time, but I've got, you know, people who stay here often. It's, it's just sort of a community thing. Once everybody gets in the staff, some of our clients that are here a lot, um, will stay over every now and then. So we don't have a lot of space as far as living space is concerned, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's anybody who's here, you know, they're here all the time. So how does the, um, how does this work from an entrance perspective? Because this seems complex to me in terms of a living space right, and a business. Uh, I guess technically it could be counted as office space. Sure, sure. And it's dedicated space there from an IRS perspective. Right. Well, we, we do have homeowner's insurance, you know, which covers the house, but we also have a separate insurance policy that covers just the studio. Um, so we've got two separate insurance policies. Uh, most of the studio stuff is obviously liability, but it does cover the rooms, covers the gear. Um, so... You know, the insurance stuff, I try the taxes and all that stuff, insurance stuff. It's just one of those things I try not to get too involved in. I sort of let um, the folks that know about that stuff deal with it most of the time. But um, but yeah, it's a separate insurance policy for the studio itself, just like any other studio would be in a commercial space. 
I recall conversations with you a couple of years ago at Potluck Con where you said that you employed people. Is that correct? Well, I do. I don't have a payroll. Okay. Um, basically, how it works is, and as far as the legality of it, you know, questionable. I I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it could be. It could not be. Um, but we haven't had any issues, you know, for the past nine years. So um, I've got you know engineers who come through, and they're sort of an independent contractor. So, oh, okay. you know, they, they come in and they work, they get paid on the way out. Um, so I don't, I don't actually have them on payroll at least yet. The studio doesn't bring in enough revenue, honestly, for it to have a, a payroll. It would be more expensive on my end to actually have a payroll than, than not to at this point. That doesn't mean it won't change in the future. But if we have uh, an engineer that's doing a lot of work, um, in a year, it'll be an independent contractor. And I think it's like a W nine or a W I forget the form. So I can fill those out for them. Um, mm -hmm. but it's really simplistic the way that works. They sort of deal with their own income, uh, studio deals with its income and it's a separate thing altogether. Okay. And you've got two studios running, uh, one with a, a newer Rupert Neve designs console and one with an older Trident console. Is that right? Yep. Are they on the same floor or are they on two different floors? They're on the same floor. It's a just a it's a single floor house. So um we on the east side of the house is and it's it's like so from the front of the house you can't really see any of it. And when you walk into the house, you wouldn't know. But in the back of the house, the whole back section of the house um is the studio space. So on the east side, we've got our little control room, which is our A room, our tracking room, which we have the 5088. Um and then the little live room, the live space. It's not a very big space, but it works for what, for what we do. And then across the way, across the lobby is our add-on, which is our big giant B room mixing suite with the Trident. So funny enough, we've got a tracking console in our mixing suite and technically a mixing console in our tracking suite, but that's just kind of how it worked out. Can you talk a little bit about how you got started in audio kind of bypassing like the early childhood experiences and more like jumping straight to like the more professional end of it. Where was, where was the tipping point for you? Well, the tipping point for me, honestly, was it's, that's a good question. The tipping point for me, I mean, I went to school, I'm a conservatory graduate. I graduated in, in 2003, which is a school actually about 15 minutes from, from me. So conveniently enough. And I decided to stay in town um, as opposed to go out of state to intern, interned here. And I think that the tipping point for me studio-wise was that I was involved already with some, some local musicians who I really believed in and I had really great friends. All of my friends were musicians. I never was. So I think it was kind of a, a fallback thing for me being a part of that group, I suppose, to be um, on the recording end. At the time, this was 2003 to 2005, there wasn't really a studio or, or a lot of studios that fit in between like, you know, bedroom laptop guy, not that that's a bad thing. And then, you know, like a big giant commercial space upwards of, you know, over a thousand dollars a day, so on and so forth. So I felt like these people that I was close to musicians who I believed in, who were, you know, um, doing some really cool things out here at the time, didn't really have a, a space that was in the middle of that. So that's kind of how 513 was born. For me, you know, I did it because I really wanted to make records and I, I never thought that it was going to, you know, really kind of take off. I thought it was just going to be like, well, we'll get bands here and there. I'll work with my friends, that kind of a thing. Um, and then we got a lot more interest right off the bat. So I ended up sort of uh, by default fitting into this studio management position. You know, I didn't have a staff. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did all the booking I did, you know, I dealt with all the money stuff, scheduling, phone calls, emails. Um, and so it was a, it was a big kind of surprise to me 
that we had so much local interest right from the beginning. Um, and then, I mean, I, I still made records, made records a lot in those early days. And then um, when we built the B Room, I sort of really fell into the studio management because I did um, all the tech work and stuff in there. I installed both of these consoles. So, you know, in, in, we're in Phoenix, so we don't have like a big pool of technicians to choose from, especially when you're working with analog stuff. So a lot of it was just me trying to just figure it out on my own, wiring, patch-based stuff. So once I got sort of deep into doing that, um, in the de- designing and wiring, getting the B room going, um, you know, the studio management position was kind of more of what I ended up doing in the end, which is not kind of, which is not really why I got into it to begin with. I mean, I love it, you know, <laughs> but, um, I don't know, you get into it to make records and then, you know, you find, you sort of find your niche and that's what happened with me. So straight out of recording school, straight into studio ownership. Is that right? Well, I mean, it wasn't obviously that fast. I mean, I did a lot of intern work when I was in school and I think that, it wasn't straight into ownership. It was just kind of straight into let's build a spot and see what happens. There wasn't this end game for me. It was all just kind of day by day. Like, I know I want to create a space that I feel comfortable recording in, that my clients and my friends will feel comfortable recording in. And let's see if we can make it happen. And we ended up having a little bit a little bit more money than we thought uh, off the top. Found mm-hmm. a really cool house to do it in. I wanted to keep that sort of, I mean, I'd interned at some commercial studios where I felt a little bit like the space was kind of cold to me. People were always worried about money, looking at their, you know, looking at the clock. And so I kind of just wanted to have this, this like different vibe, this sort of housey, you know, comfortable spot, which is why I didn't go commercial. Plus it was a lot more expensive. Um, to go commercial at the time. And it's, I mean, obviously it still is here. So, so that's kind of how, how that was born, I guess, if that makes sense. There wasn't, I didn't really have a, have an end game. It was like, well, you know, I mean, I was 23 and all I knew was the gear that I'd worked on when I was in school and the purchases that I made. I knew I wanted to work with tape. And honestly, it's just because I felt more comfortable working with tape. So we got a tape machine, we got an analog console and just sort of made it happen. What's the recording community like in Phoenix and the Tempe area? That's a really good question. <laughs> it's it's funny. Tempe, the Tempe area used to be the musical hub for Arizona. And the bands that came out of Arizona that did, you know, anything that would be noticeable, I suppose, like the Gin Blossoms is kind of the first thing that comes to mind. That all sort of came out of out of this early 90s to like late 90s, maybe early 2000s. Um, Mill Avenue on Tempe kind of thing. There's a lot of venues out here. And now um, Mill and, and and the city of Tempe has really sort of gone so commercial that um, in, the, in the business end that most of this, the cool stuff or the, you know, the local music stuff is happening in downtown Phoenix. I mean, when I was, when I was younger getting into this, like you didn't go downtown unless you had to pay like a traffic ticket or something, you know, it wasn't really a place to hang or a place to be. And then the downtown Phoenix area really started to pick up a lot more really cool local businesses were happening. There was a lot of really cool art stuff that was happening. And so now the scene is really more focused um, in in Phoenix more so than it is in Tempe. But Phoenix is, I mean, we are in Phoenix. Everywhere essentially is Phoenix. It's just the greater Phoenix area. Um, so, but, you know, the local scene, it, it it's it's changing sort of really, really slowly. There's a, a big DIY community here. And, and I think the the biggest, I don't know if it's a problem, but, you know, the biggest thing about the Phoenix music scene is that it's so young. And Phoenix is a really, really young city in comparison to, you know, any other city that's had 
a musical community for so many years, whatever, Chicago. I mean, even I'm just trying to think of some other spots that would that would Omaha is a great, you know, example. Austin. I mean, these these places have have had a little bit more time to be like these musical hubs. And Phoenix is still sort of, you know, in its infancy when it comes to that stuff. So but it's moving quickly, um, moving out of that, hopefully a little bit more attention in Phoenix than there has been in the past, I don't know, 10 years. Would you agree that a city's ability to accommodate a recording community, a recording studio community is directly attributed to the presence of live venues? Absolutely. That's a huge part of it. And in in Phoenix, there's this, there's this interesting catch 22 that happens, you know, Phoenix isn't known for having great venues. It never has. Uh, We've got some, you know, some giant, some giant amphitheater sort sort of venue things happening, um, which we've had for years. But as far as like the little local venues, um, just in the past six or seven years, we've had a couple of really great venues open up here. One in particular downtown called the Crescent Ballroom. And it's got really great sound. And that was a big game changer here in Phoenix because most of the, most of the, you know, um, the venues around at the time, I mean, they were cool places to be and they supported the music scene, which was really, really great. But, you know, bands didn't really hear themselves on stage. Nobody really heard vocals in the audience. And so, you know, the sound just wasn't where it needed to be. And that has a huge detrimental effect, I think, on, on local music. It has a detrimental effect on, um, bands being prepared, um, good records being made. You know, I mean, if you, if you're going into a venue and, and you can't really hear yourself and you're practicing at home in a tiny room and you can't really hear yourself, you know, you go in to make a record in a studio and that's the first time you're really hearing yourself. And it's a, it's a game changer for a lot of bands, you know, the venues need to step it up just like the bands need to step it up. You know, not a lot of bands in Phoenix treat, treat their sort of ventures like a business. You know, it's kind of it's it's a little more hobby oriented, not to say that there aren't bands out here that that do treat it like a business. And those bands are doing really well. Um, those bands tend to come into the studio. They're more prepared. They're willing to pay for it. Um, but, you know, Phoenix, again, it's it's live music is is still sort of catching on as becoming something that people want to do all the time. It's the biggest, littlest city in a way, because when you go to shows, you see the same faces. I've seen the same faces at shows, kids who are willing to pay, pay a cover, you know, that this is a new thing in Phoenix. It's like, oh, I'm going to pay $10 to see a local band. That seems weird to me where, you know, in any other city, that's just the norm. I mean, that's, you know, so, but that's starting to change now. Um, I don't know if I'm just getting older, but probably, but, you know, there's a lot of new young faces that are out going to shows and getting involved. The venues are stepping it up. Um, sound is getting better out here. Um, we still have a long way to go. Everyone has to sort of, the venues have to do it. The bands have to do it. The recording studios have to do it. It just, every, every, everybody has to work together. And that collaboration is not quite set yet, I don't think. Hopefully the next, man, next five, 10 years, I hope that's what's going to happen. We'll see. It's, it's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> we talk a lot about ecosystems, on the podcast. And it, to me, as we, as we're sitting here talking about it, I I realize that it's really, there's so many facets to being a recording studio or a recording engineer that go beyond us. Um, Because if a city council or a a mayor and a city council is not um, entertainment friendly, uh, then you're going to have a hard time having live venues. And then live venues are the incubators for 
local bands, which local bands essentially need to, you know, record. And so does it ever interest you to, you know, become a little more knowledgeable about what's going on uh, politically uh, or locally in terms of city councils and, you know, and knowing what's, what's happening in the entertainment world. Uh, yeah. You know, it's the, the people who have been on the forefront of, of trying to make this music scene in Phoenix successful have, have been the same faces since I've been involved. Uh, there's a guy out here, his name is Charlie Levy. He's really great. And, and he, you know, um, he's been a, he was a show promoter for a long time. Um, now he's, he owns a couple of really great venues and those are the ones that are really sort of stepping it up sound wise. Um, Kimber Lanning is another uh, woman out here who's involved with keeping businesses as local as possible. And she's always been a huge part of the music scene. She also owns a record store out here. So those people have always been sort of pushing and pushing and pushing for it. The problem with it is that Arizona is a very conservative, you know, Republican state. And I think that just kind of goes hand in hand with, with entertainment and art not really being supported. And I don't know if it's a purposeful thing. It just isn't, you know, on the top of the priority list of a lot of the political agendas here in Arizona. I think that that's changing. Um, it's changed a little bit, I think, since I've been doing this. But Arizona is really tough. You know, we don't have that sort of that platform for supporting artists, visual artists or, you know, musical artists. So mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff has to be done um, by the little guys, you know, the people who aren't involved politically. And it's a lot of work. And I think that, you know, those of us who have been sort of dedicated to making those things happen are so busy. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of studios out here and there's not a lot of venues. And so I think that what we have is sort of this monopolization of, of, of what's going on, you know, artistically. So we're, we're just, we're so busy sort of dealing with the day to day that that political thing, I think at times just seems a little overwhelming when you're up against, you know, this super conservative platform. Well, and I think traditionally uh, conservatives don't align themselves with DIY experimental, you know, try it out and see what happens kind of development within the art world. Um, I, I feel that, you know, I, not, not being a conservative person and trying to evaluate that fairly, I feel like conservatives tend to maybe go for a more tried and true kind of uh, want to be successful at it. Whereas I think those who tend to be not as conservative and maybe in the arts, they're willing to take, take a bigger risk. Sure. With not only credibility, reputation, money, just to see if something is going to fly commercially. And, you know, I mean, it's the same problem kind of, I don't know, I guess you could say everywhere where, you know, the people, the people that have the good taste don't tend to have the money. <laughs> to, you know what I mean? To do, to do the things that are really going to support that type of scene. Um, and I think that Phoenix is a really great example of that, unfortunately. Tucson, which is not far from here. I mean, we're, you know, where potlucks usually held has a fantastic music scene. Um, it's supported by the community. It's supported by, um, you know, some political folks that are down there. And so, or I don't know, I think it just, it's, it takes this, the younger generation, you know, or now, which would essentially be us, 
me. I mean, I'm in my, I'm in my, you know, early thirties, early to mid thirties. And I think that the people that have been around it for so long are just now starting to be able to, to make those changes, um, whether it be financially, whether it be that they're just kind of over, um, being shy about it, you know, and, mm-hmm. or just have the confidence at this point to sort of get up and, and say, okay, no, you know, we need to, the venues need to step it up. Like we need better sound systems. We need bands to, to, you know, to represent something, to represent the city. We all need to work together and collaborate. The collaboration issue in Phoenix is the biggest issue. Everybody, it's so spread out and everyone's in their own little kind of pocket of, you know, it's like, oh, we're a band and we're in Gilbert or we're a band and we're in Tempe. We're a band and we're in Phoenix. And everybody kind of wants to be that thing that makes it, that makes Phoenix, that puts Phoenix on the map, which is great. However, you know, what they're missing is that if one band is successful, all the bands are successful if everybody works hard and everybody supports each other. And so what we're missing essentially is this supportive, collaborative sort of, you know, soup that, you know, needs to happen to make a music scene noticeable in a place like Phoenix. I don't know if it's so much this way now. I mean, I my musical and band involvement is is slightly different than it was when I was in my 20s and 30s, but there used to be kind of a stigma attached to I you know, identifying yourself as a business or thinking in terms of a business when it comes to art. So, what do you think the hesitation is on on musicians part in general to think of themselves as a business and therefore collaborating with other businesses or bands um, to make a stronger community or a stronger, a stronger musical community. What, what's, what's the problem there? In Phoenix, I would have to say, and I, and I don't know that I have an explanation for it mm-hmm. per se, but I would have to say that it's skepticism. It's general skepticism. Everyone is very skeptic of what it's going to do to their reputation to play maybe with this band or that band or, you know, if we don't play these venues, if we play too much or not enough, or um, when it comes to the recording studio part of it, we get a lot, a lot of folks that are really skeptic about losing creative control. Um, And I think that, you know, obviously being, I think musicians in general, especially when they're on stage or or when they're in the studio, I mean, it's a vulnerable place for anyone to be, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To sort of, put your art out there. And, you know, it's, I think that there's not, hasn't been a lot of success here. And I think that people are just skeptical. They're skeptical of that experience of, of putting that out there and failing, you know, I mean, you have to fail a bunch of times to, to make it work in the end. Um, and again, you know, there's a lot of bands who, who don't have this problem who, and it's, and it's great. Um, and I think that there are some bands that are young that are going to sort of crawl out of this at, at a certain point in time. But, you know, everyone kind of has to do it all at once. And that's the thing. But, yeah, you know, it's just people are super skeptical about about everything, you know, and it becomes, I think, less less about the music and more about what we're getting out of it. Does that make, I don't know if that makes any sense. It does make sense. But I'm, here's here's an even deeper question. Do you think the younger generation of bands is so influenced and brought up on American Idol style television uh, music programs that um, they they don't go through the experimental phases that they should and instead try to become a, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but 
they tr they try to become a perfect thing r in the in the very beginning, and they don't go through those natural growing pains that a band should go through, in my opinion. Agreed, and I think that technology has a lot to do with that. I mean, we're living in an era right now where everything is like now, now, now. You know, we've got this, especially the younger generation, with you know, oh, if it's going to take longer than two point five seconds for that you know website to pop up, I'm over it. I've moved on. Um, I mean. <laughs> You've got iTunes where you can just preview something. It's like, oh, I don't like that song. Next, 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 next. I mean, we don't listen to records all the way through anymore. I mean, I do, but I'm, you know, I'm a nerd for that. So, you know, oh, you do that? You're such a nerd. It's like, wait a minute. That, okay, like, that's fine. I'll take that. But, um, you know, I think the the album as an art form has gone out the window. And I just, it's like, there's this aggravated kind of impatience that happens. And I don't think it's purposeful. It's just, it's 2015 and it's a, it's a computer screen or it's a phone or it's a recording program. And it's, that's fast. There's plugins that have presets and it's just a different world. So, you know, as much as bands need to go through those growing pains, I think maybe back in the day. And I, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm young enough to not have been a part of, I mean, I just caught the very end, I think of like this sort of analog thing that's dying, hopefully not. But, um, so I think that, you know, maybe young bands now it, it's, e it's so easy for them to not have to go through those growing pains. Maybe, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, we can just do it really quickly and, and we can just tune it. And then, you know, we have this device. It's everything is so device oriented and it's all about the thing that you're using and not the music that you're playing in a way. So I think that, yeah, that has something to do with it for sure. But I think it's just, I think it's, it's this, like, there's this, just this impatience, you know, <laughs> like you have to be like, you've got to be patient. Yes. Impatience. And, uh, and that obviously, you know, it's not just musicians, record, recording engineers, producers, uh, Everybody's guilty of that. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm. We're all guilty of it. Yeah. We want it now. Uh huh. And we want it correct. Exactly. <laughs> we want it fast and cheap and now, and 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 it better be right. Hope you're enjoying the interview here with Catherine Veracoli from Five Thirteen Recording, and just want to take a little intermission, a little coffee break, actually, to uh, fill up the coffee cup and also say a few words about our friends at SonarWorks, SonarWorks.com, and their room calibration software. Um, if you are thinking about picking up their, their software and microphone package, make sure you type in WCA works in the checkout discount box, and that'll get you $33 or 33 euros off the price, which I hope helps, uh, take a little pressure off the pocketbook. I got to say that it's, uh, it's become a crucial thing for me in my mix room here and I've talked to some other folks, WCA guest, Gary Phillips sent me a message. He picked it up. And he was in absolute shock at what he discovered in his room and said, I want to remix everything now. And, you know, I just said, hey, the truth hurts. So uh, unfortunately, those of us uh, who think we have uh, perfect rooms or flat responses in our, in our rooms, and maybe we really don't. So unless you've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on your room, of course, you know, which if you can afford to do that, you can probably afford a little time to uh, download the demo and at least do yourself a favor and see what the, the truth is, see what you, the, the frequency response of your room is, and that'll give you an indication as to why your mixes are turning out the way they are, whether that's good, bad, or otherwise. And uh, that's it. Uh, I'll just say that the stuff is working for me, and I really, really 
have a deep appreciation for uh, what those folks at SonarWorks are doing. And uh, yeah, it's a great thing. Really happy I, I got my package uh, from them and enjoying it, enjoying the results, really. Let's get back to uh, our interview here with Catherine Veracoli on Working Glass Audio. Speaking of growing pains, what challenges did you face in, in building out your studio? Well, I, I mean, a lot. I think I faced the same challenges that, you know, anybody would building a studio, which is it takes twice as long to do it than you think it's going to when it comes down to the actual physical building of it. Um, you know, issues with the city, things like that. Um, but those are all, you know, the norm when you when you when you build something. Um, but I think I think the challenges, mo most of it was just being where we are geographically. You know, we don't have a community of folks who build recording studios. You know, we don't have a, a community of technicians. You know, I mean, I have an acoustician who is also my technician, right? Who is also this and who is also that. And who also happens to be the tech for both campuses of the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. So it's, you know, that guy is pretty damn busy. Um, so I think the biggest challenges were just like figuring it out on my own because I didn't really have another resource. Figuring out how to acquire gear, who to go through, finding uh, gear companies and, and sort of, yeah, finding gear companies and, and middlemen that were, you know, that were excited and willing to talk to me about gear. Um, you know, I mean, I was really young and, you know, I hate to bring the, the woman thing into it because, you know, that's always a hot topic. But, you know, you have a 23 year old girl who calls uh, a major gear company and wants to buy, you know, a console and a tape machine. And I got a lot of like, why do you want to do this? What, where are you? You're in Phoenix. So I think, I, I mean, I had, I had a little bit of issues in the beginning with not being taken seriously, hmm. just in general, um, here in Phoenix and also dealing with some people out of the state with gear and such, but you know, that was short lived and it was a great learning experience. Yeah. I think the biggest challenges was just like, you know, can, can we make this happen? Is it going to be supported here in Phoenix? Do we have enough interest? Is this even going to make any money ever? You know, which the answer to that question is not really, but you know, it makes <laughs> it's enough to continue to do what we love right every day. So I consider myself lucky in that regard, but are we going to be happy just dealing with local stuff forever? You know, I think, you know, 90% of the clients that we work with are local guys and gals, local engineers that rent, that rent the studio out, you know, like the big challenge is to maybe reconsider what you think is quote success. You know, you have yes. to, rede you have to redefine what success is for you and you have to do that. Or at least I had to do that continuously through the process. Like, Oh, you know, shit, we got the studio built. Yes. Like that's a success. We've got people who want to use it. That's a success. Um, we've got engineers who are interested in coming and working here. That's a success. So I think when you come out fresh from, from recording school with that, with that gung ho Grammys in the eyes kind of thing, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's one way to measure things, but it may not be the most realistic, especially, um, in a city like Phoenix. Yeah. Well, <sighs> Once again, maybe that's the influence of growing up watching the Grammys on television. It could and, be. And that yeah. success that maybe initially you identify with is, oh, yeah, that's something I'd like to do. You know, not to say that I'm not trying to demonize television. And, no, not at all. Oh, not at all. But I mean, we are a product of what we're shown. You know, I mean, when it comes to the music scene or the music industry in general, being young and not knowing anything and being young in 
in a recording education program. Mm -hmm. Things aren't really talked about when it comes to um, little personal growth things. You know, it's about like, oh, we they did this on Led Zeppelin or, you know, and it's like, it's still sort of, it's still sort of that way in the industry in a little bit. It's it's a very sort of, you know, what what is focused on, I guess, I'm trying to figure out a good way to put this, but the the focus of of what's shown in this industry is like very much the top one, one, two percent a lot of the time. And I think that, you know, things are changing with that too, with the internet and, you know, we've got publications, uh, tape op, um, has, has usually been pretty good about, you know, pushing that DIY home recording kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we are, we're sort of a product of what we're exposed to. Right. So, I mean, that was my experience for sure. We were talking about the, the challenges, uh, that you faced, the uphill battles in building the studio and hunting down resources. Sure. If, if I asked you, you know, what, what are some successful resources that you came across in your experience? Now, granted, we're going back now nine years, Yeah, but what, uh, are there any of those resources that have, uh, whether they be a vendor or uh, uh, a, a person that you got knowledge from or a website or, yeah. Can you talk about that? I can. I, I think the biggest resource and still to this day, one of my biggest resources and also uh, somebody who I consider to be a, a mentor and a great friend um, is a, a gentleman named Jeff Harris. Um, and he he's a tech. He's also a teacher. Um, he's also an acoustician. He's involved in building studios. And he doesn't just do it here. He does it, you know, um, everywhere. He he was one of my teachers when I was when I was a student he taught tape alignment at the time. And I just, I felt really comfortable with him. And he was sort of the acoustician that everyone used when they wanted to get into this stuff out here. And he really sort of took 513 on as this, almost like this personal project, which was super cool. Um, Again, you know, Phoenix isn't really this giant hub for, you know, um, engineers and musicians and a music scene and a recording community. Um, it's obviously nothing like Nashville, Los Angeles, you know, New York city. So, you know, I never really had like a mentor, you know, I didn't go to a studio and intern and have somebody go like, Hey, let me show you what's going on here. I never had somebody to sort of cradle me through the process. Um, but I did have Jeff and he, he really, he was so supportive with like, Hey, you can do this. This is going to be cool. Let me show you how to do it. And then let you go and figure it out from here. And he's still around. He's still my tech. I love him to death. So Jeff Harris is, was, I think, my biggest resource. And then I think a lot of the other stuff was just kind of, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of reading about building recording studios, a lot of reading about studio management. A lot of my instructors, again, were, were great resources. The, the funny thing is, is like 513 was sort of born out of these musicians that I was close to, friends of mine. So a lot of my resources, funny enough, were musicians. Like, how, what would you, how do you feel about this? Are you comfortable in a room like this? You know, um, how do you feel about the recording process? Talk to me about some of the the experiences you've had in a studio. Were they positive? Were they negative? Um, and so a lot of my resources, I suppose you could say, came from musicians who did, who'd experienced it, you mm-hmm. know, or may, maybe they had a bad experience with an engineer. Maybe they had a really good experience with an engineer. Um, and so that was kind of like my map, almost in a way, for building the studio and sort of creating a, creating a comfortable space. I'm trying to think of some other things. Uh, oh, gear, as far as gear companies, my first experience buying gear was really negative, unfortunately. And I won't, I won't get into uh, where that was or who that was because it's not important. But um, I will say that I really found um, 
a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I sort of found a great gear home in Vintage King. Um, and I don't know if like a lot of people have had, you know, same experiences with, with Vintage King and, and, and maybe it's a mixed thing here and there, depending on you, on who you were involved with. But I had a rep at Vintage King who was kind of like the first guy to really say like, oh, rad, like you're going to build this studio in Phoenix in a house that is, that is super cool. Like, what can we do to help you out? You know? And I didn't know a lot, you know, I mean, I knew what I learned in school. Right. But I didn't know a lot about like how these things were going to we're going to go together. I didn't know about like what kind of power I needed. I didn't know about like what was the best kind of cabling for this. And Vintage King was great. I mean, they were, and, and my rep specifically, he was great to just be supportive, you know, and um, he didn't really care where I was or who I was or how young I was or anything. Um, and that was a great sort of confidence boost to be like, okay, cool. I have these people who are in it with me, um, you know, we're going to support me through this. So, um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I'd have to really sort of think if there's any other, but those are the ones that come to mind. I want to just play devil's advocate for a minute on, on, on this experience of vintage King. Um, and I know some vintage King folks and, and they're, and they're wonderful. So I'm not trying to challenge vintage King in any way, but I, but I do want to ask, okay, so you're on the phone with a salesperson and they say, great, that's fantastic. That showing enthusiasm, of course, and because obviously it wouldn't be in their best interest for them to show negativity. So when they say, how can we help? I, 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 I want to ask is, did that come from a sincere place of, well, I have a good, really good answer to this question. When I got started, I, and my rep still does this, which is cool. Um, I would, you know, come to the table saying like, this is how many inputs I want. This is what I want to do. And there's a lot of gear that's going to, that's going to do that. There's a, a variety of things, especially now. Um, and I've had, you know, my rep at Vintage King has said like, hey, you can get this done with this thing and it's cheaper. This piece is cheaper than the other piece that you were looking at. I'm trying to think if I can think of it of an example specifically. And I want to say that it was some converters and I'm not sure. Oh, you know what? Yes, I have a great example. And this is, this is recently. So, I mean, this is still a good answer to the question, but I was really thinking about getting into um, a Burl mothership. Um, I'd heard some really good things about it. I'd heard it, um, in Nashville and other places. And it just was awesome. And I was like, man, I'd love to have this in the studio. It'd be great. I'm gonna get rid of the Avid stuff. You know, we're just going to go straight Burl and, you know, and it was really expensive and it is really expensive. Um, and you know, my rep was like, look, why don't, you know, here's, here's, here's a B2 bomber. Here's a couple of inputs. Why not start there? Check it out. You know, get, get it hooked up with the Avid, see how you feel about it. And, you know, here's some other options that might be a little bit cheaper, you know? And so, and he was right because it wasn't, I mean, at this point we, we built a relationship, you know, and he knows the gear in my studio and he knows me and he knows, you know, what I'm going to say and what my budgets usually are and that they're pretty tight. You know, I mean, we're in Phoenix, we don't make a lot of money. So that's, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, and I, I'm not saying that other gear companies won't do that or haven't done that. And that I haven't had those experiences elsewhere, that's kind of that that just it means a lot to a studio owner, especially when you're young and getting into it, mm -hmm. you know, to have somebody be like, you know what, here's some other options. Check these out. Get back to me and let me know what you think. Let me send this to you. If you hate it, send it back. You know, it's just that 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 kind of stuff. I think I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It, it. But I mean, so that's that is an example of of 
of some sin sincerity of, of guiding you in the right direction. Did you ha have to ask a lot of questions and were they willing to answer those questions? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would come to the phone call like, Hey, this is what I want to do. And I'm not exactly sure how to do it. Okay. You know, um, I'm used to working with these particular things and now I'm in my own space and I have all these options in front of me. I've got all these different compressors and all these different, you know, different dynamics, different mic pre's I've never used before. never heard about, let's talk to me about them. Um, you know, and I think that that in comparison to my very first experience buying gear, which was a, a Neotech and a, and a Studer, um, that was, that was the complete opposite. It was just like, yeah, okay. Um, why do you want to do this? Like, why should we even take you seriously? Which I thought was really interesting. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and then it was like, this is how much it's going to cost. And, oh, wait, wait, wait. Actually, no, it's going to cost this much now, which was more. And then, oh, and we need the money right now. I know we said it was going to be X amount of time. And then, you know, we'll send you this stuff. And that was that. You know, I didn't know any better at all. I mean, I was like fresh out of basically out of the recording womb right off the turnip truck right off the turnip truck you know and but it was it was a really great experience because those two pieces were really really broken mm -hmm. they were not in the state that i thought they were going to be in the 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 thing that kind of sucked about it was that i bought i knew i wanted these these specific pieces and i bought them at the same time and i didn't have my a room built yet so they sat for a little bit you know, they sat for, I don't know how long, but it wasn't too long, you know, maybe a few months and I got them hooked up and I got my tech over and we fired up the MK3 and uh, with a studio mm -hmm. 800 and it was just fried. The whole damn thing was fried. The console, pretty much most of it was, was fried. So we had a lot of work to put into it. And when I called these guys back, this particular company who I won't name, um, I don't think exists anymore, but that's not important. Um, they were like, oh, yeah, we have no idea who you are. Like, wait, you bought these from us when? You know, it was such a bad experience, I think, that going from that into dealing with, you know, Vintage King, or it could have been anyone, maybe, you know, Sweetwater wouldn't have mattered and had somebody be like, okay, cool. Let me answer all the questions that you have and also uh, put some, some stuff on the table that's more affordable for you maybe you can look into that was just like, are you kidding me? Like, this is amazing, you know? Um, so I think it was just having that really bad experience right off the top for me, you know? It's interesting. Uh, you mentioned before you were telling your Vintage King rep, you know, this is what I need. I need these capabilities. And Mark Rubel in his recent podcast, uh, I asked him about gear purchasing and he said, what's important in gear purchasing, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, it's important for you to, if you're going to buy gear, buy capability. What is it that you cannot do that, that you can add to your, your toolkit? So I'm kind of curious about, does that reflect your own gear buying policy or, yeah. or philosophy? For sure. For sure. And it's, it's interesting here for us because um, we have some, some limitations. We've got financial limitations, obviously, um, just because of where we're at. Um, we've got space limitations. Our A room is tiny. Um, as much as I'd love to fill it with racks, gear, I mean, I really don't have any place to put it. We have power limitations. You know, um, we're tapped at a certain point. I mean, this is a home, so we can't, you know, we can only have our power companies come out and upgrade it so many times. It's a very expensive sort of venture. Um, and I'm also catering to multiple engineers that do 
totally different things. You know, I've got um, a rental engineer who works in our B room all the time. And I would say that a lot of the time he kind of gets the bills paid, you know, I don't know if you like, and I'm sure everyone's had clients like that who are just around all the time and I'm thankful for him, but he is in the box all the time. And for me personally, that's not really where I live. You know, it's, I don't know a lot about it. It's not my specialty. So, um, you know, he's, when he asks for certain things or requests or suggests that we get some plugins, it's not really anything personally that I really want to buy, you know, like for me. So it's, a, I have to sort of make concessions in that, in that way. And then I also have to make sure that those plugins are plugins that everyone else is going to use because otherwise, you know, so it's like this balancing game. Um, which is really cool because every time we buy something new, I get, you know, I get the staff together and we sit down and talk about it. Like, Hey, here's some options. This is what I'm thinking. Um, how does everybody feel about this? It's really sort of a community decision process. Um, when we, when we buy gear, but yeah, the capability is, is a huge thing. Just, I mean, we don't have a lot of space. So, um, plus with gear nowadays, you've got gear that does so many things, you know, you've got like, it's an A to D and it's got a mic pre and it's this and it's that. And it used to be like, okay, it's this thing and it does this one thing. And then there's another piece of gear here and it's this thing and it does that thing. Um, and they're giant and they take up a lot of space and they're expensive, <laughs> you know? And now we've got this like one U rack piece that just does like, you know, it's a mic pre and, and it's a channel strip and it does your dishes and your laundry. And then, you know, it also connects the internet and, you know, so it's capability is, I mean, it's kind of a different game now than it, than it used to be. I mean, for me, at least when I got started, um, I mean, I didn't even care about A to D converters or D to A converters when I got into this, you know, I was like, well, aren't those like in pro tools? Don't they just do that? You know, I mean, <laughs> it took me a while to sort of figure out like, okay, that's an important process when we're, when we're balancing that, you know, that sort of trying to keep, trying to keep tape going in a place like Phoenix and analog stuff going in a place like Phoenix, but also catering to the other half of the world, which is, you know, we need to have pro tools and it has to communicate for a person that is younger than me, um, you seem to uh, have a little more analog mindset and uh, are of an older school than, than I am. I don't know if that is a result of, you know, I went, I, I, I've been through analog and, and done that. And I'm not saying that it's, it's like a higher level to be in the digital world. I just found that the digital in the box world process workflow is very, um, uh, friendly to me. And so I, I've kind of adopted that and, and kind of gotten myself out of the analog mindset. Do you find it difficult as, to stay in the analog mindset when many people potentially around you, for example, this, this engineer that rents, rents your, your mix room, uh, when they're asking for plugins? I mean, do you, does it give you pause sometimes? Does it make you think, hmm, well, maybe I should start to go down that path? Um, I wouldn't say that it gives me pause. I, I mean, for me, I think everybody has their, their little niche that has their little comfort sort of blanket, you know, and it's different for everyone. I mean, some people really love the analog and digital, um, marriage. Some people are a lot more comfortable working in the box. Some people hate working in the box. I think that for me personally, um, and it's, I don't know if it's just this analog purist mindset, but it just, things make a lot more sense to me when they're tactile. So I think digital stuff and plugins for me are, it's, it's just a weird, it's just so weird to me 
to open up a plugin and look at something, you know, at a piece of gear that I could be touching otherwise if it was in the studio. Um, and it's sort of a strange thing. And, and I think for me, I mean, I don't find it difficult to switch between platforms. I mean, I don't prefer to work in Pro Tools. I obviously do, you know, every, almost every day. Um, but I really love those sessions where, where we have the computer monitor turned off and we have the keyboard out of the way. And I think the biggest thing for me about that is I find that the focus of the engineer and everybody in the room turns away from a computer screen and onto each other, which is super important. I feel personally, and I don't think that, you know, not everyone's going to feel this way, but, um, I feel like when I'm, when I'm working in a tape session or I'm involved in a, in a session without any computers running, um, you know, people tend to pay more attention to the music and less attention to what might be happening, clicks and drags and, you know, and I think that um, musicians, a lot of the time who are unfamiliar with the recording process, which a lot of them are, especially in Phoenix, um, can relate a little bit more to the fact that, that there's actually something happening when you're touching a tape machine. They can see the tape moving, um, they see the meters, and it's a tactile thing as opposed to seeing the back of my head and hearing my, you know, keyboard tapping. So, I mean, and I've said this before in some other interviews, but I get a lot of the times I get questions like, what are you doing? What is that? You know, I mean, a lot. Whereas when I'm when I'm in a tape session, it's pretty self-explanatory what I'm doing. I mean, they may ask, but like they can they can figure it out when I hit rewind the tape's going to rewind, you know, and if I hit play or if I hit record, there's a giant, you know, there's a giant red button on a giant machine that's doing it. It's very tactile, you know? Um, and there's just, a, it just, it, it creates a different environment where in my experience personally, I feel like, you know, uh, lend to better records, you know? What about the economics of analog recording in today's budget uh, budget constrained world. How do you make that work? Because tape is expensive. It is. What, what's your strategy there? Well, honestly, my strategy is, I mean, my strategy is that whereas tape is expensive, not having a lot of limitations is also expensive in pro tools. There's, or just in a, in a DAO or digital platform, there's so many things that can be done. Um, all the time. And so what you have, or my experience, you have sessions that tend to last a lot longer. Being right. limitless can be expensive time-wise. Okay. Um, however, uh, tape is expensive. You're right. And so, man, it's, it's mostly, I mean, it's up to the client, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't actually, we don't store tape, blank tape here. We do sometimes. Um, biggest reason we don't have the room for it. We don't have anywhere to put it, but also I, I tend to, I, I, I let the clients get the tape because I feel like it, they become more involved in the process of actually, you know, that starting of that tape, especially if it's their first tape session. Mm -hmm. Um, and they know how much it is and we're not making any money on the tape. It's weird to sort of charge people for tape space to me. It's like, how do you, okay, you're going to use this tape that's already been used. And it, it's hard for me to come up with like a number that makes sense to charge people for a rented tape. Right. Okay. Um, so it's up to the client. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I try to sell it as much as I can. I mean, we, we do walkthroughs with, with all of our bands before, you know, we book sessions, which is great. And some some clients, you know, I don't I don't even lay that out as an option because I know that, you know, either 
depending on the genre or what kind of band it is, or maybe I can tell that, you know, Pro Tools is going to be the, the most cost-effective, efficient way for them to make their record, right? To get, to get to the goal of what it is they're going for. And so sometimes I don't mention it, but with clients that I feel like tape would be really cool and it would work for them, you know, um, I always do. And it doesn't mean I always sell it. I mean, we're in Phoenix, it's 2015. And I would say that, man, I would say that 40% of our sessions are tape or there's tape involved in them, which I don't know how that happens. That's a Um, high percentage. It is. And I don't have like a, like a, and maybe it's because there's not a lot of that happening out here. And I don't really have like an explanation so much for it, but I'm thankful for that because, you know, can you buy tape locally? No. Um, I mean, we can find like one pass tape lying around locally. Um, we used to use a lot of one pass, one pass tape and, and we don't so much anymore just because of, of the fact that, you know, we don't have a lot of text. So machine wise, it tends to, it tends to put a lot of stress on our, on our tape machines. Um, but, um, I mean, we use, we use, we use ATR tape, I mean, as much as possible. Um, RMG sometimes depending on, you know, where it's coming from and, and what the budget is. I, I think the RMG is still, is still a little bit cheaper, but I'm not sure. Excuse mm-hmm. me, than ATR. But no, there's nowhere for us to buy tape locally. There's nowhere for nowhere really for us to buy pro audio gear locally, unless we want to go to Guitar Center, which, you know, we can talk about that for hours, but we won't. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, so everything has to be outsourced. Um, it, it's funny because we're sitting next to literally geographically next to two, well, the same school, but two giant recording school campuses, you know, with like, SSLs and Neves and gear and, you know, tape and, and they have to outsource as well, you know? So it's just, it's interesting. Um, there used to be some stuff out here where you could, you could source that stuff, but, but not anymore. I mean, m- most of the, most of the large form- format r- professional studios have shut down. So. I was just going to conclude the tape conversation to say that maybe when the client picks up the tape, um, that, as you said, they're, they're more invested in it, but sure. It also kind of gets them to commit because it does. They can yeah. always cancel the session, but right. If you're stuck with a couple reels of two inch tape, sure, you may not want to cancel because what are you going to do with that tape? Yeah, and it starts that tactile process immediately. You know, it, there's something like again, we don't have a lot of people or a lot of musicians out here, especially the younger generation that has ever seen a two inch tape machine, nor have they ever tracked a tape. So it's like when you when you put a giant tape on a two inch machine, um, and all the meters light up and 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 you know it starts rolling and they and they're just like what you know the, just to see their eyeballs pop out of their heads is really cool. I mean it's one of the biggest um, little joyous things that I have in in doing tape sessions is just seeing seeing a musician or a band experience that for the first time. Um, and so, yeah, when they get the tape, it starts that sort of tactile, like they get to like, whoa, it's really heavy. Like, whoa, it's, you know, this is a thing that we're going to do that has been going on for, you know, years and years and years. It ties them to the roots of the industry, to the roots of, of, of record making immediately. Uh, but it also, uh, and I've had this conversation with John Vanderslice before, is that when you go to tape, generally, unless you have close ties with other studios in the area, you tend to stick to stick to you finish the record at that studio. You do. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a hard drive, sky's the limit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can, I mean, as much as I love, and I'm not going to get into the home recording um, conundrum, but as much as I like, I love the fact that bands, 
now have the ability and the technology to record at home. I mean, yeah, we lose money, sure. But it just, for me, I find more so that they're just more prepared when they come into the studio because they're going to come in at some point. They're yeah. going to get to a point in the process, um, most of them at least, most of the bands that do it, um, do they get to a point where they're like, oh, no, I need some help with this. And they'll come in and, and, and we'll mix some stuff that they've done at home or maybe they'll come in and do you know, um, maybe they'll do guitars at home and come in and do vocals here or something. So, and we're, I'm, I'm happy to record, you know, anything at any time, basically in the process. If you're making a record at home, that's really great. I mean, it, it just, it gives you that experience that you need, especially if it's a young band. Um, because I find again, that they're they're they'll be in at some point because of that, because of that process that they've gotten into, you know? In our uh, last bit of remaining time, I, I, I want to ask you about your involvement uh, with Pink Noise uh, because you and Alan Farmello are tied into that. Tell me a little bit about uh, about what Pink Noise means to you. The, and, and for the listener, if you haven't heard the Alan Farmello interview, you want to give a summation of what Pink Noise is for those that haven't heard Alan's interview? Sure. You know, man, it's a tough, it's a tough question to answer that because I think for everyone, it's going to be something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um but Pink Noise is basically what it is, is it's it's a it's a it's a pro audio blog that is is dedicated to diversifying the voice in pro audio. It's dedicated to um and when I say diversifying, I mean like more women in pro audio, um uh racial d- diversification, sexual diversification, which I think is really important. Um, and also really sort of trying to get back to um, having an intelligent discourse about making records and about um, this industry. And, and what we tend to do is, I don't want to use the word challenge, but I think it's, we sort of automatically challenge how the industry is portrayed. Um, and it's so, so much gear-centric and gear-focused. And we all love gear. And it's not, it's not like this isn't like a gear-bashing kind of thing, but um, we're sort of trying to take the focus out of the gear and what everyone's using and how cool is this and how awesome is that and moving into like the studio process. Let's talk about, let's talk about why we're making records. Let's talk about, um, let's talk about why there's so few women in this industry. What's going on there? Um, let's talk about how we can, we can present ourselves in a really intelligent way as recording engineers, as professionals? How can we be better than we are? How can the industry be better than it is? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a good explanation. I mean, there's a mission statement on the, on the website and it's kind of brainy and I don't know it by heart. But um, as far as what Pink Noise means to me personally, and it's funny because um, I met Alan probably at the same uh, conference that I, that I met you at Matt, which was, you know, I, I don't remember what panel it was. He did a, a panel about, um, about analog recording in a digital age. And I was, I somehow made it onto that, that keynote panel, which was super cool. And that's, I met Alan there and we had some conversations, just some brainy conversations about, about the industry. And he kind of, he hit me up on Facebook one day and was like, Hey, I really want to talk about like, about the over-sexualization of gear. And I was like, that's a really interesting topic. And he's like, and I want to talk about, um, you know, why there are, are so few women in this industry. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting topic as well. You know, it's not something that, to be honest, I really ever thought that much into, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, and I want you to co-edit this with me. I think it'd be really great. And I had no experience writing, no experience co-editing anything at all. And so my initial reaction was like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this. This is sort of going to be really challenging and sort of an unknown place for me. But I'm so thankful that I did because um, it's been super rewarding to work with Alan and, and, and he's brilliant and I'm, I'm super lucky to know him. And so I think for me personally, it's just, it's like this really cool platform to just talk about, you know, some of the things that don't get talked about in this industry at all, ever, or rarely. Um, and to sort of bring the focus back to like, you know, to why we're doing what we're doing and not what it is we're using to do it, if that makes any sense. Seems like it's predominantly uh, straight white men that the industry caters to. And th- for, uh, you know, a field that is artistic based, um, that's kind of single minded to say and, the yeah, least. Yeah. And I don't know that it is, it is a purposeful thing. And it's, and, and the cool thing about Pink Noise, at least for me, is that these topics are presented in a very discussion based manner. Um, Alan and I are both really opinionated people, which is, you know, I don't think we'd be doing this if, if we weren't. Um, and so we get into some stuff and, and, you know, and we, we start a little fires here and there, not necessarily on purpose, but, um, it's getting the conversation going, I think mm-hmm. is the most important thing for us. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you turn a mirror sort of onto, onto the, uh, the pro audio industry. Um, and like, ask yourself why, why they're so, you know, I mean, it's like, I think the, it's one to 5% female involvement. Um, and why aren't, you know, why is that? Is it, is it the chicken and the egg sort of thing where it's like a lot of women might not want to get involved in something that's already so predominantly male, you mm-hmm. know? And so it sort of feeds into itself, but the cool thing and, and the thing that we've, we've been able to do, which is great is to sort of, when we do interview, we have that, we have an interview series called the straight eight, which is just eight questions are all the same questions. Um, and one of the questions has to do with like, why, why do you think there are so few women, women in, in pro audio? And the answers that we get are really super interesting. What's great is that I think we're in it more so just to like, try to figure out why things are the way they are and not so much to go like, you know, hurrah, hurrah, we need more women. We need more this, you know, I mean, comes across that way at times, um, which can be good or can be bad, but it's like, it's starting a discussion, um, that maybe hasn't really been started and maybe needs to, you know, in, in a, in a sort of intelligent way, you know, I would agree. Yeah. Bring this, like bring a more intelligent discourse into, um, into this environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes some people really uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, yeah. Which is, I mean, which is actually kind of great. I mean, I mean, in my opinion, but you know, it's yeah. There's people in the world who are used to things being a particular way, and when change appears, it makes them uncomfortable. And you know, we're in the pro audio di- industry; we are no different. And it is a boys. I mean, it's a boys' club. It is what it is. You know, a lot of it. Which I mean, some people, some women, I think that are that are involved look at that as a challenge, or look at that as you know. Um, it doesn't really bother them too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, I know a lot of really wonderful and, and very talented women that work in this industry, engineers, producers, studio owners, studio managers, it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
they're a huge part of the community and it's really great, but it's still such a small, small, small percentage. I'm going to make a prediction that let's give it, well, let's say it's going to be 10 years. In 10 years, I bet the percentage of men versus women in pro audio is radically going to be different. And I predict that because I think the reason is deeper than pro audio. I think it goes back to early education uh, for kids. And in situations, I think, where you have young girls, if they're discouraged or face any roadblocks in a technical field, whether it be science or math, I think that they tend to go in a slightly different direction. And when that happens, I think that um, that in itself has been, uh, I think that combined with traditional roles has has been the the source of the issue. I like that 10-year prediction. And and I, I mean, I do hope that you're right. You know, I mean, I hope it happens faster than that. I mean, I think it's happening right now. I'm trying to be conservative about the yeah. estimate, but I yeah. feel that the role of women in in technology is changing rapidly every single day. And as a result, I mean, you know, we see more women in politics, we see more women in CEO positions, technology companies. And while you could probably count them all, you know, on a couple hands, I think it's going to surpass that. Over I hope time. so. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I think that I think and I, w- I want to make this a point too, and say that I think that there are having so few women in the industry is just one of the symptoms, I guess, if that makes sense, of maybe some problems that we have in the pro audio, audio industry in general. And I don't I don't want to make it into like a feminist fight, but like you know, um, it's pretty gear focused. It's pretty, like you said, it's pretty, you know, white, straight male focused, Mm -hmm. a lot of it, most of it. Um, and I, and I just think that like, there are other things that, that might be happening where the fact that women are so few is just a symptom of, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it might be a bigger problem. It might be like, again, just the way that things are presented with like, you know, gear and racks and like, man, it's, it's just such a weird thing when you, when you look at gear advertising and I won't get too much into that, but a lot of it has to do with advertising, um, which is one of the major reasons why, you know, pink noise isn't getting involved in any of that, at least, at least for now. Um, and so I think that, you know, like, I think it's not so much the fact that there are so few women Mm I am more interested in. And I think that everyone hopefully should be more interested in, in, in why that is. And then looking at that, as as something to discuss and talk about, you know? I will say this, that if you look at audio magazines from the 70s, and even in the early 80s, they were more tech-based. They were more... Right. Um, it was a little more cerebral. I feel, and I could be completely wrong, but I'm just going to throw this out there. I kind of have a feeling that as we got into a little more of the world of the hair metal type thing... And MTV and where we were at musically, the the view of of women in those situations was a little more, you know, like Playboy centerfold model type, pers- you know, personifications. And I think that that started to, you know, have its tentacles in everything. I think as we've, I mean, obviously we've been out of hair metal for years, but I think we're moving more in a direction of a more cerebral uh, thought. I mean, tape op is a clear example. Uh, Sound on Sound is a brilliant magazine. In Sound my on Sound is one of my favorites, hands down. One of the one of the one of the most uh, smart magazines out there, uh, along with Tape Op, and um, 
it maybe it's uh there's some guitar magazines i don't know what their names are because there's so many of them but recently there was an issue that i ran into uh not only did i see somebody post a picture of it online but i also saw saw it in the uh in a bookstore in a magazine rack and i was like what the hell is this this is crazy and maybe it's if if you've got so many men a herd mentality you get a lot sure. of guys together yeah. Yeah. running the show and right. eventually it's going to be like oh let's put the hot chick out on the cover who's scantily clad who doesn't even play guitar nobody knows who she is right and and you know what like i'm not saying or suggesting that we're ever going to as a, as a society abandon that that is always going to be around right. um that sort of mentality of like this is going to sell sure um what is our who is who are our viewers who are our readers. I mean, any, any audio conference that you go to, you know, like it's everywhere. There's, you know, I mean, even some of, some of the, you know, after parties, it's, it's everywhere. And I mean, it's, man, I don't think that we're going to abandon that, unfortunately, anytime soon. I think it's, in, I think it's embedded and I think it's ingrained, but what's important is to ask ourselves, I think like, hey, we are f smart, professional people. We are technically on it, aren't we? Aren't we engineers? Aren't we producers? Aren't we, you know, smart business people in a technical field? Right. We're not, we're not porn filmmakers. No, I mean, we're really not. Like, we're not a bunch of Neanderthal bros is this how we want to promote ourselves? I suppose is the best way to say it. Is this how we want to present ourselves as pro audio engineers as an industry? And I don't think that it's something that's really ever been heavily talked about or thought about. And so going back to, you know, what pink noise means to me, I mean, that's a big part of it. And it's not like, it's not there as a big fight. It's just there to say like, hey, I don't know if you know, but sometimes you look really dumb when you present something in this way. And maybe it's kind of a turnoff to some people who would otherwise really love to get involved in this industry that may not because of things like this, because of these ingrained um, presentations of machismo, kind of over-sexualized, um, over-emasculated um, ways of presenting things, whether it be gear or whatever, you know, um, I think it's everywhere. And, you know, it's not, it's not like, let's make a big to do about it, but Hey, maybe let's talk about it. Let's see how many other folks out there are, will are willing or interested in talking about it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and it's been really interesting. We've had, again, we've had some, some people who were pretty pissed off about it, which is for me personally, sort of entertaining at times, but, but we've also had some really wonderful supportive stuff from, from gear companies. We've got these awesome emails from gear companies that are just like, wow, we never thought about it that way. Like, shit, we never even looked into it like that. Like, this is kind of, we're going to, we're really going to think about this now when we put together some advertising or when we present ourselves or present a new piece of gear. We've had emails from, from, from engineers that were like, you know, I have a, I have a two daughters who are really 
really stoked about music and really stoked about being in a recording studio and might want to get into this. And I never thought about that until now. Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, it's like I, you know, with two sons who I want them to grow and to be good men, I would be reluctant to buy a magazine that had a super pornographic type cover bring that home and have them see that and just think, oh, okay, that's the way it should be. It's like, well, when I, when I don't believe that myself, you know, it's like. Right, right. And it's not to say that those, you know, like those industries, wherever they may be, are full of bad men by any means. But I think it's just a matter of like, you're right. Like how, how is this being perceived? How could it be perceived? And maybe it's something to be thought about and maybe it's something to be discussed. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note. This has been fantastic, and I am very happy that you uh, took the time to speak with me. Oh yeah, I'm. It's been awesome doing this. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's it's super cool to to be a part of something that so many really talented and wonderful people have been a part of. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I I, I unfortunately we missed each other uh, by not having potluck to go to I know, this past year. I know but, it's uh, tough, but hey, I'll be at AES. So I, I, will, I will not. That coincides with Halloween. Yes, it does. That's and, a big kid holiday. And you know, it only it's it's only here for a certain amount of time. And I've got to be here for the for the guys to uh, to trick or treat. Plus, I like trick or treating. Sure, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll cross paths at some time. So it's been awesome talking to you, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, and hey, thanks for thanks for working class audio. Just in general, it's a really great program. I mean, from I haven't listened to a lot of a lot of the interviews, but from what I've read and the people that you have on, I think it's it's a great group. So well, thank you. Yeah, thanks again for doing what you do. Thank you, and I will chat with you later. All right, there it is, Catherine Veracoli of 513 Recording here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope that was informative. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, And thank you all for listening. We're out of time today, but uh, we'll be back next week with another guest. And of course, uh, the new ask, as I I like to say, head on over to iTunes and give us a review. Give us, uh, say something nice. Don't say anything mean. Say, Say something nice. We appreciate it. My goal is to get us on the front page of the podcasts, uh, podcast listing on iTunes. And so I'm hoping that these reviews really uh, get us in that, going in that direction. So there it is. Head on over to iTunes, click on the link on the website. And if you can't find it, or just, of course, look for working class audio through the search. You you guys are smart, of course. You figured this out. Anyways, give us a, give us a nice review if you can, if you feel compelled to. And uh, talk to you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.